So I'm going to repeat. I love John chapter 4, verse 4. John 4, 4 says, And Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, the men are actually studying through the Gospel of John just now. We talked about this a week or so ago. The King James renders it like this, He must needs go through Samaria. Other translations read, It was necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria. Another one reads, He needed to go through Samaria. And one might look at a map and see this as a geographic necessity. Jesus was in the south. Galilee's in the north. And Samaria's right in between. But if we know our history, we realize that this was not necessarily a geographic necessity. In fact, we know that there was such antipathy between the Jews and the Samaritans that most Jews would not travel through Samaria. There was an alternate course on the uh, west coast where they could just uh, skirt the coast and barely go through Samaria. There was another way to, uh, to uh, Galilee from Judah, and that was east of the Jordan where they would not have to go through Samaria at all. So we understand just, if we know some history, we know Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria uh, out of geographic necessity. He didn't have to. Who knows what the word serendipitous means? Anybody? It's one of those strange words. Al knows. It means good fortune in finding something not sought for. It means unexpected, unforeseen, unanticipated, opportune, a chance, occurrence. If you know your Bibles, you realize the God of the Bible is not a serendipitous God. There are no unexpected, unforeseen chance events. So why does Jesus go through Samaria? You know why. He had a divine appointment with a woman at a well. That's why Jesus went. Through Samaria, through Samaria. I love that passage. You say, you know, I think I think we read over the 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 wonder and the awe and the miraculous all the time in Scripture by not thinking deeply about, for instance, this particular passage. Jesus had been planning and looking forward to going through Samaria from eternity past. He had been looking forward to meeting that woman at the well from eternity past. She was one of His. And He went to get her. And that's what we're going to talk a little bit about tonight. That's what we're going to talk about as we look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. As we mentioned two weeks ago, this happens all the time in the Bible. People just walk right into God. Or God walks right into them. Lord willing, after we talk a bit about 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 tonight, we'll have a better understanding of that beautiful reality. We'll understand that Christianity is, is not left to chance. It's not serendipitous. It's not a matter of serendipity. God is at work redeeming. His people. Two weeks ago we talked about that Peter was the perfect man. Those of you who were here will remember. He's the perfect man to write 1 Peter. The Holy Spirit has Peter tell us many things in this little epistle, but principally the primary message of 
First Peter is to encourage Christians who are suffering severe persecution. That is the uh, essential message of First Peter, a message of encouragement to those who were suffering the persecution, most likely of Nero after the burning of Rome. Nero blames the burning of Rome on the Christians and a persecution breaks out. We find often in Scripture that when believers are going through a hard time, the Holy Spirit exhorts us to remember that our God is a sovereign God. He's not a pathetic God. He's not sitting up in heaven, wringing His hands, hoping He could get things to work out. I know this is the kind of God that's preached in many pulpits these days, but that is not Jehovah. That is not the God of the Bible. And the writers of the Bible, principally the Holy Spirit through the men He chose to use, He wants us to understand that. Beloved, God's sovereignty is our freedom to be radical Christians in the world. We need to understand that. Our God reigns. He rules and He reigns. No man can stay his hand, as the prophet Daniel says. No demon can stay his hand. No group of men, no group of demons can stay the mighty outstretched arm of Jehovah God. Now if you have a small God, you don't have the Christian God. Our God is God. Our God rules and reigns. He does whatever He pleases in heaven and earth. Amen? Amen! That's who... Our God is... Peter understood this firsthand. He knew how he had simply walked right into God and how God had dramatically changed his life. We, we talked about it a little bit just for review. Last week we had a special guest speaker, so I'm just going to try to review a little bit to bring us back to where we were two weeks ago. He knew what it was like to just walk into God. Do you remember... Peter's profession of faith. You remember Jesus turned and looked to his men and he said, Who do you say that I am? You remember what happened? What did Peter say? Peter said, You are the Son of God. You are the Christ. You are Messiah. Remember what Jesus said back to him? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. Peter understands about conversion. He understands about how, how he can come to a, a, the place to make a, a solid profession of faith in Christ. It was sovereign disclosure from the Father. Peter understands this. I think this is one reason that Peter was chosen by the Holy Spirit to write this book. The other thing Peter understood, we talked about two weeks ago, is that Peter understood how God's sovereignty got him through the worst trial of his life. We talked a little bit about how Satan had come and demanded permission to sift Peter like wheat, which means to overthrow his faith. And we understand that the Bible tells us that Peter denied the Lord three times. And we sometimes wonder, well, how did Peter ever recover and become the leader of the disciples and the leader of the church again? We looked at that great text in Luke. Remember what Jesus told Peter right after He told him that Satan was going to sift him? Jesus said, I pray for you. And He didn't say, if you return. He said, when you return. And we took from that, as we should, 
that the Trinity is holding. The Trinity is holding His people. God holds His people. God holds His people. Jesus said, I prayed for you, Peter. He never said that to Judas. We know that Jesus had identified Judas as, as the devil among them. He never prayed that for Judas. He prayed it for Peter. Beloved, there's a lot of power here. <laughs> you know, if we'll believe it and learn to appropriate it. So Peter had come through the trial because Jesus had prayed him through it. Jesus, uh, Peter came through the trial because the triune God was holding him. It's why Peter begins this letter with this weighty doctrine. It's why he begins in such a lofty place. He wants to comfort them with the truth that got him through the hard spot, that his God is sovereign and his God is able. Peter had experienced it. Peter had lived it. Some of you have as well. He knows that it's a comfort in difficult times to remember that our God is God and nobody else is. <laughs> nobody else is. To know that persecutions and trials do not come into the Christian's life because we are not loved. They come into our lives because we are loved from eternity past. We talked about this a little bit last week. We'll talk just a little bit more about it. We don't encounter persecutions and trials because we've been forgotten, but because we are ever-present in the heart of God. We don't encounter trials uh, because we are forsaken, but because we are chosen. Not because we are neglected, but because we are elected. Not because we are abandoned, but because we are adopted. Jesus said it, and we talked about it two weeks ago. Jesus said it as plain as it can be said. Jesus looked at His men and He said, You did not choose Me. I chose you. And this is a little bit of what we're going to talk about tonight. You may remember two weeks ago we said, Jesus said to His men, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted Me, they will also persecute you. Jesus says the world hates you for the very reason that I chose you. And you are Mine. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. It's how the Holy Spirit directs Peter to begin this letter to suffering Christians. I read the text there, verses 1 and 2. I won't reread them. Two weeks ago, we developed the, the issue of being aliens, and I won't redevelop that, but we understand from what I just read out of John 15 that Jesus had said, we are not of this world. We understand what Hebrews 11 says. We are exiles. We are strangers. If you don't know that about yourself, you're never fully going to live as a disciple of Christ. You need to understand you are passing through. You are not here to stay. You are here to go. And if you're a Christian tonight, He's left you on the planet for one reason. Not two. One. To be His disciple. And let your light shine in such a way that men may glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's why you're still here. Yes, we have subordinate responsibilities. I understand that. We all have subordinate responsibilities. But your principal purpose for being on the planet, walking around, inhaling and exhaling 
is to bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ. So tonight I'm going to focus principally on this passage that many do not like, some of you may not like, some of you may have been taught differently, but I'm going to focus on this clear text here tonight. It says that we are Christians, Sue Peter's writing to, we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's as far as I'm going to get tonight. I'll have to do the rest of the verse next time we get together. Get, get together. The first thing I always point out when looking at a weighty biblical doctrine is that um, we need to be humble. We need to be humble when we come before God's Word. We don't need to assume we understand what it means. We need to work hard to understand what it means. Doctrine and... Uh, this is a doctrine that many in the modern church at best ignore and at worst deny. We must never forget if we're preaching from the 66 books of the Bible, this is God's Word. That is the view of this church. It is the inerrant and infallible Word of God. God says what He means he means what He says. We don't take the edges off. We don't try to make it soft for people. We just preach what it is. That's who we are at the International Church of Milan. If you don't really believe that the Bible is God's Word, you should never come back here. Because that's all you're ever going to hear is God's Word being exposited from this Pulpit, kind of. So that's who we are. That's what we do. If you, if you view that the Bible is full of error and that God was so pathetic, He was such a pathetic God, he couldn't, he couldn't preserve it for His people and errant, I would submit to you, you have a low view of God. Your view of Scripture is a reflection of your view of God. We believe, as I said earlier, that He is an awesome and sovereign and almighty God. And no one can frustrate his plans. The preeminent issue, and beloved, this is a difficult doctrine. You heard me pray earlier. Some of you are in different places. We're all in different places. Some of you may have never dealt with the doctrine of election. You may have been in churches that have never, ever, ever, ever talked about it. Because it, it's, it can be controversial. It sometimes can divide. Beloved, that's not why God told us about the doctrine of election. And shame on us if we don't have the courage to stand here and just simply say what God says. We have no right to call ourselves a church if we don't have the integrity to deal. You know, principally I preach verse by verse. And so... When you come to the next verse and it says you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, you have to deal with it. You can't just skip over it. You know, you, you have to deal with the hard stuff. You have to deal with the stuff that people, some people don't like or they've been taught differently. So I encourage you, I give you permission to struggle. You have permission to struggle. We all struggle with weighty truth. You do not have permission to reject 
You do not have permission to deny. Beloved, this is the Word of God. And I always go back to Isaiah 66. God says, this is the one to whom I will look. The one who is humble and contrite of heart, and if needs to, he trembles at my Word. God says, that's the man I'll look to. The humble man. The man that is contrite in his spirit. The man who, yeah, if he needs to, he trembles at my Word. So, beloved, as we get into this, I I want to challenge you to be humble. To be humble before the Word of God. Modern man is mostly blind to his own arrogance before God. Man's arrogance is, is modern man's arrogance is it's so ubiquitous, it's so pervasive. We're like a, we're almost like a fish in water. We don't even know we're wet. Our arrogance before God. We don't even realize we are arrogant before God. But we are. Most of us are incredibly, unspeakably arrogant. Before God, instead of humbling ourselves before this awesome Creator, we, we accuse Him of unrighteousness. We, we accuse Him of, of not giving a, a, a good enough accounting of Himself. Well, why did you let that happen? Well, why don't you stop that? Well, why don't you do something there? Is this not modern man? Don't you hear this in the world all the time? I even hear it in the church sometimes. Beloved, don't be guilty of a backhanded accusation against Jehovah God. Who do you think you are? What does Paul say to the Romans in Romans chapter 9? Oh man, who do you think you are? To answer back to God. Beloved, let's have some humility. Let's have some humility before the Lord. If we knew the God of Psalm 99, we would, not, we would never accuse Him. We would never call Him to account. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He's enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. This is the God with whom we have to do. C.S. Lewis says that modern man has appointed himself judge and put God on trial. Do I have to tell you how not only arrogant that is, how stupid that is. So my exhortation to you is to be humble as we look at the Word together tonight. God is crystal clear in this text and in all other texts where he speaks about the doctrine of election. The Greek is crystal clear, beloved. And I'm going to share some Greek with you. I don't normally do this, and I'm going to teach tonight more than I preach. Okay, I've been preaching so far. But I'm going to teach pretty much the rest of the way. I want to try to hand off to you some superficial understanding that We don't need to be afraid of this truth. We need to embrace this truth. And this is what God is clearly saying in His Word. The Greek is clear. Words matter. Words mean things. I know that modern man is really adept at explaining away the words he doesn't like. But words mean things. These Greek words, they are crystal clear. There's no way to misinterpret what God has said. Now, we can edit God, but we can't with any integrity misinterpret God. So I'm going to try to hand that off to you and make that point. Some in the modern church have made a conscious decision to ignore this truth. At ICM, we've made a conscious decision not to ignore anything we find in Scripture, (laughs) no matter how uncomfortable it may make us. 
So when the next verse says, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, we deal with it. Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by some of the things that I have to say. Is that how God said that? How does it go? Man does not live by bread alone, but what? On every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Listen, God says that you are chosen, all who are Christians tonight, you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Don't ignore it. Don't edit it. Receive it. And if you struggle with it, here's what happens. Here's what we do as Christians. We don't reject it because some questionable teacher taught us to reject it. We receive it by faith and we deal with it. This is what God's people have always done with His Word. We receive it by faith and we deal with it. Listen, beloved, I struggled with this truth for years. Decades. And I finally had to humble myself before God, put my hand over my mouth and lay on my face and praise the sovereign God. So, we're going to deal with it as best we can. We don't need a big name theologian. I'm not one. Right? You don't need a seminary degree to understand these verses. The Greek is crystal clear. And I want to say to you, if you begin to study these, these truths and you begin to receive them, it will change your life. Maybe not as much as a taco. No, as a burrito? Tacos. Where was that place you get the tacos? Jack in the box. No, I'm going I'm to go out on a limb here. I'm going to say it'll change your life more than a taco. It will. Now talk to Eric about that. That's a, kind of an inside thing. It'll change your life much, to a much greater degree. The English word translated chosen here is the Greek word eklektos. It occurs 23 times in Scripture. Okay, now I'm in teaching mode. Please stay with me. Just try to stay with me. Try to give yourself to this. Try to give your mind to it. 23 occurrences in Scripture. 16 times it's translated elect. You've read it. If you've read your Bible, you understand the word is there. Elect. Seven times it's translated chosen. It means simply that. Elect, chosen, picked out, or choice. One of the places we see this word used in, in context, in the context of its clear meaning, Ephesians 1, 3-6. Many of you know this, this great text. It's very famous. I'll just read it to you very quickly. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. So from this text, we see at least in part the when, how, and why of this. When? Before the foundation of the world. God chose His people. How? In love. In love, the Father predestined us to become adopted children. Why? Because of the kind intention of His will and to the praise of the glory of His grace. Beloved, I want to say to you that most modern preaching and teaching and gospel presentations end up making man the focal point. Man is never the focal point. 
The biblical gospel is radically God-centered. It is not man-centered. It is radically God-centered. God initiated it. It was His idea. God affected it. It's what God has done. I hope you know that the biblical gospel is radically God-centered. God secured it and it glorifies God. It's not for the glory of man. It is for the glory of God. One way you can discern if a church is truly biblical or not, is, it, is its message principally man-centered? Is it pretty much about me? And all the things God can do for me? Yes, God can do a lot for us, obviously. But is that the drumbeat? It's about me? It's about the blessings I can get from God? Is that the drumbeat of that church? Or is it about, is it God-centered? Is it about God? Where you, you feel humbled and you need to worship. And you realize that salvation is not about us. It is about God. And it's an awesome thing. And beloved, when you get a, 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 a God-centered view of Scripture, man, change your life. It'll change your life. The word predestined here in Ephesians 1.5 means exactly what it says. It means exactly what you think it means. Although some of you may want to be in your own mind redefining it or qualifying it, it means exactly what you think it means. It is the word porizo. It occurs six times in Scripture. Four times it's translated predestinate. One time to determine before and one time to ordain. God has predetermined, decided, and appointed beforehand. This is the clear meaning of the text. You cannot run from clear definitions. Although many do. So God the Holy Spirit tells us that Christians are chosen in eternity past. God the Holy Spirit tells us that Christians are predestined from eternity past. Listen, I know this is a terrible sermon to preach to many of you who are here for the first time and possibly for the last. Okay? But this is what we do. We don't try to please men. I would love to please you if I could. But my principal goal is oh, guess what? To please God. I'm the one that has to stand before Him and give an account for you. Jim, why did you skip over 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2? Well, I was afraid to preach it because I was afraid that these new people wouldn't like it. And they, they would think, you know, we were way out there. And I know what God would say to me. He says, you're supposed to be way out there. That's what churches are supposed to be. You're supposed to preach my word, whether men like it or not. So, hey, there it is. There it is. I hope you'll come back next week. So one theologian said, as long as God has been God, He has loved His people. Don't you love that? And I love what God said to, told Jeremiah. He said, before you were in the womb, someone tell me, I knew you. This is how God has loved you, beloved. If you're a Christian tonight, as long as God's been God, which is a long time, you have been in His heart. And He has loved you. Which brings us back to 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 2, that oft-abused word, foreknowledge. God the Holy Spirit tells us that Christians are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, I know what you're thinking, what some of you are thinking, some of you have been taught, 
Many people want to say, well, what this means is God is prescient. God sees the future. God looks down the corridors of time. God sees that Jim Albright is going to place faith in Jesus Christ. Then God elects me. Then God predestines me. Now, this is a view that many people like. There's only one problem with it. It is clearly not what the words mean. Which is, I think, a significant problem. Now, listen, you don't have to take my word for any of this. You go study it for yourself. You don't have to be a Greek scholar. Just get a Greek lexicon. Study it for yourself. Don't be so arrogant to reject it out of hand. You go study it for yourself. Listen, you have to answer before God as well. You're accountable to God as well. So, study it for yourself. I love what one of my teachers said in seminary. He said, Man, to say that God's looking down the corridors of time to see who will choose and then He predestines, he says it's like linguistic trickery. It's like the king decreeing that the sun will rise in the morning and taking credit for it. I think he's right. We just need to simply hear what the Lord is saying to us. The Greek word translated foreknowledge is prognosis. It occurs twice in Scripture, both times translated foreknowledge. Uh, meaning not foresee, mean, meaning foreseeing, pardon me, not foreseeing, meaning to prearrange. The other place that foreknowledge is mentioned is Acts 2.23. You may remember the text. It's quite famous. It gives us a very clear understanding of what God is communicating here. Acts 2.23, this man, Jesus Christ, was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. I can remember my Greek professor in seminary saying, there it is. This is how you, this is how you define foreknowledge right here in context. Acts 2.23. The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. The crucifixion of Jesus is not something um, God merely foresaw. It was quite obviously something God had preordained. He didn't merely observe it. He planned it. And it informs what God means when He uses the word foreknowledge. Also, there's that famous passage, Romans 8.29. It's helpful in our understanding. You know the great text, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. Okay. Here again, people want to say, Well, He foreknew in that He foresaw. Listen. Think about it. The text doesn't say He foresaw an event. What does the text say? Someone tell me. He what? He foreknew His people. It's not I foresaw something and chose you. It's I knew you before you were in the womb. As He told Jeremiah. I get excited about it because, you know, one, I'm an excitable guy. And two, I love this stuff, man. And if you're in process, be in process. Say, Jim, I, I, I'm not where you are. I don't think I can wrap my mind around it. Okay. But don't reject it. Don't reject it. Receive it. Pray about it. Work on it. Sweat blood over the text. Go to Romans chapter 9 and just sweat until you're dehydrated. And then go drink some water and sweat some more. Study the Scripture to see if these things are 
So, it's clear that God is not foreseeing. He is foreknowing. Whether you like it, or whether I like it, this is what the text says. Words mean things. Words matter. And if you'll go, if you'll take the time, if you struggle, if you'll go and you'll look at the words, just look at the words for yourself, you will see that we can't make this argument that God is looking down the corridors of time. We can't make it. Okay, people make it, but they can't make it with any biblical integrity, okay? Or intellectual integrity. You can't make that argument with any biblical integrity. If you have a theological bias against it, that's one thing. But you can't make the argument. You simply can't do it. The Greek word translated for no in Romans 8.29 is prognosko, literally, to know before. <laughs> Listen, man, you can't run from what the words mean. To know before. I knew you before. I knew you before the womb. This is how God knows his people. It's the same word that Jesus used in John 17.3 when He defined eternal life. Who remembers Got Jesus' definition of eternal life? This is eternal life that you're a good church member and you attend regularly and you, you're, you're in the choir and what was it? Was that it? Jesus said, this is eternal life what? Someone tell me. That you may know God. Beloved, that's the final, ultimate uh, litmus test of being a Christian. It's not whether you did a sacrament or a ceremony or you belong. your name is on a church roll. The litmus test is, do you know Him? The litmus test is, are you in relationship with Him? Do you talk to Him? Do you hear Him? Do you love Him? Are you giving yourself more and more and more away to Him? This is, this is biblical Christianity. It's not the junk that's you know, counterfeited and sold all over the world, both Catholic and Protestant. Last point. Last point I'll make here. Going back to First Peter, I want you to I hope you have a Bible. If you'll go down and look at at First Peter chapter one verse twenty. Oh, guess what word is in verse one, uh, or in chapter one, verse twenty? Someone tell me what word you see down there. Oh, it's that word again. Foreknown. Now, unless you have a King James or a New King James, how many of you have a King James or a New King James? It actually uses the word, it actually translates that word there, foreordained, which, slam dunk! It, it translates the word foreknowledge. The same, it's the same word. The word that's in verse 2, it's translated foreknowledge. In verse 20, it's translated foreordained. Same word! It's clear what God is saying. Peter, the Holy Spirit is certainly not going to lead Peter to confuse us. Listen, if the text tells us that God, the Father, knew, foreknew Jesus, is it saying that God the Father had foreknowledge that Jesus would go to the cross? I love John MacArthur's sarcasm here. MacArthur says of this silly view that God is simply looking down the corridors of time. <laughs> he says... He says, oh, I see the Father looking down the corridors of time. And he says, oh, that's what Jesus is going to do. Oh, 
Now I know. Now I get it. Now I understand. Beloved, that's ridiculous. And that's what you're inferring. If you, if you try to say the foreknowledge in verse 2 is looking down the quarters of time, then you've got a real problem with verse 20. Because it's saying that God has foreknown His Son. Are you saying that He looked down the quarters of time to, to know what Jesus would do? Beloved, again, the words are clear. The words are clear. God is not foreseeing. God is foreknowing. This view of looking down the quarters of time, and I know many hold it, many probably who have never studied it, but it's like anything else in Scripture. Once you study it for yourself, you come to some understanding. At least most of us do, as the Holy Spirit teaches us. This kind of view is not only silly, it's wrong, and it may well be blasphemous because it exalts, it exalts the will of man over the will of God. And it gives man credit for something that God has done. So, words matter, beloved. If you have a problem, I, I apologize. I never go into this much Greek. I never do it. I usually just, I'm full of exhortation. It's all about exhortation. But, you know, if I, I'm going to give an account to the Lord. He's going to ask me, Jim, why did you tell my people what I really meant? You know, why didn't you lay it out for them? Why didn't you, tell, why didn't you show them the words? Show them the irrefutable words. It's okay. Give my people permission to struggle with a weighty doctrine. But don't you dare reject it. Don't you dare run from it. Don't you dare ignore it. Don't you dare edit it. Don't you dare redefine it. Struggle with it if you do. If, if, if you must. I re can relate. I've been there. I've been there. When we get over to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, we'll see that Scripture is not up for debate. God says that Scripture is never a matter of one's own interpretation. <laughs> That's why I took you to the words. I'm not up here, you know, spinning my yarn for you. Lord willing, I'm trying to give you some sense of how powerful this argument is in Scripture. And I know probably some of the Greek went over your head. You, you have to study it out for yourself, beloved. You have to study it out for yourself. Sure, when Scripture is not altogether clear on some peripheral points, thoughtful and well-meaning men can disagree. I get that. I embrace that. But that is not the case here. Regarding the doctrine of election, the issue is explicitly clear. And this is not a peripheral issue. My counsel to you is to believe what God says even if you struggle with it. Even if you don't fully understand it. I go back to Isaiah 66. You be humble. You be contrite. And if you have to tremble, tremble. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay if you need to tremble before God's Word. Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? It's about geography. No, it's about a woman He has loved from eternity past and He goes and He gets her. And if you're a Christian tonight, He came for you. And He got you. And everything changed. Everything changed. 
Nothing is ever the same after you meet Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about little religious icon Jesus. I'm talking about the living God. Everything changes when you meet Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't go to her because He foresaw that she would believe. Jesus went to her because in eternity past, He fell in love with her and He chose her to be his own, it wasn't about foreseeing, it was about foreloving. Okay, yeah, a lot of doctrine tonight. Uh, again, this is what we do in, the, in, in this church. We go verse by verse. So when we hit the hard verse, we deal with the hard verse. But beloved, I pray you'll hear the Lord. I pray you'll humble yourself under this mighty text. And wherever you are, regarding this truth. You'll be teachable. And you'll be open. And you'll, and you'll, you'll investigate it for yourself. You know, I tell, you, I tell people here sometimes, you, you shouldn't believe it because I say it. You should never believe anything because I said it. I am no, I'm, I'm nothing. I mean, I'm a man. I went to seminary. I preach the Bible. But you shouldn't believe, you know, there are a lot of men out there preaching the Bible. They're preaching all kinds of crazy stuff. They open their Bible and they get all kinds of goofy stuff out of here. You, you, you owe it to yourself. I promise, the deeper you go into the sovereignty of God, your life will change. You will love Him more. You will worship Him more. You will serve Him more. And you will not be able to wait to get to heaven to see Him. To live is Christ. To die is gain. I pray that's a reality in your life. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for this weighty truth. Some of us in this room have no doubt, probably been taught differently. Thank You, Lord, that You've given us the ability to look at the words. You are not a God of confusion. Sure, there are some things in the Bible that are difficult to understand and men disagree. But if we actually look at the words, there is no legitimate room to run, to be afraid, to ignore, you tell us what you mean. The secret things belong to God, but the revealed things belong to us. And we praise You, Lord, that You have revealed to us You are great and mighty and awesome, sovereign God. And we bow our knee. We are not arrogant before You, Lord. We do not demand an accounting from You. We do not accuse You of unrighteousness. We may not fully understand it with our fallen, finite, sinful mind, we bow before You, the great Creator, Redeemer God. And we give all praise and glory to our beautiful Redeemer, Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.